So this is the uh, last of our little mini-series of big questions. And it's a nice, easy one to finish with. How do I know God's will for my life? I'm sure none of us have ever wondered that, so it should be quick, simple, and painless. We may even finish early. Now, if there is one thing that you'd think would be central to being a Christian, it is being in God's will. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. So already it sounds a bit scary if somehow we miss it. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. But how are we supposed to know what it is? Well, if you've been around the Christian world for more than a nanosecond, you will have picked up lots of helpful tips on that. Hearing some words in my head and believing that God put them there. God's speaking to me through something I'm feeling or sensing. Someone giving me a word or picture which might be from God. I read a Bible verse or a story which I think is God speaking. I put out a fleece as Gideon did in Judges 6, asking God to do something so that I'll know it's him by whether he does it or not. Or I read into my life circumstances, things that happen or don't happen, whether doors open or close, and I take that to be God. Now, it may already be apparent that when you write them all down like that, most of them sound a bit random and a bit error-prone and definitely a bit subjective. So to rely on them being right seems a, a bit risky. For example, outside of the circles that we move in, words in my head are known as schizophrenia. <laughs> that something that I'm feeling may be God, or it might just be last night's takeaway. How do I know whether that word or picture in last week's service really was for me, and not one of the other 150 people who are there? And putting out a fleece sounds biblical, but was Gideon right to test the Lord in that way? Because it's actually the only time in the Bible when someone did that. So putting out a fleece is no more biblical than God speaking through a donkey, as he did to Balaam in Numbers 22. So perhaps that's not the best model for us to follow. Lynn, I'm just popping down the farm to see what God's saying. It won't be long. And perhaps most important of all, what do we do when we don't feel anything? Then what? Now, people sometimes say that God has a perfect plan for our lives. But what if we miss the target? What if we miss plan A? Do we have to settle for plan B or plan C? I mean, think of the consequences if we marry the wrong person or move to the wrong town or take the wrong job, if we miss the bullseye of God's will for us. Which raises a bigger question, of course, as well. What things are in the category of God's will and what things aren't? What things does God have a will about? Where does he draw the boundaries? Because the person that we marry and the job we do and the church we join, they all seem to be pretty obvious things, don't they? That he definitely would have a will about. But how about what I have for lunch today? Or whether I wear pink socks? 
or whether I have a Shiraz or a Chardonnay with dinner. Now, most of the time I do wear pink socks, as it happens, and most of the time I go for the Shiraz. But maybe that's because I like pink socks and Shiraz. So maybe that's just my will, not his will. Maybe he wants me to choose white socks and Prosecco. Does God have a plan for my life with that level of detail? And if not, where does it start and stop? Where do I find a list of what things are in which category? The things that God has a will about and the things he doesn't. Now, you may be thinking that I'm being a bit facetious in some of this. Um, So if you do, please forgive me. I am not belittling God speaking to us. I'm just trying to illustrate how difficult it is when we try to follow some of the guidelines that people use. So what I'd like to do this morning is to try to offer a simple framework for thinking about the will of God. And to make it easy to remember, instead of thinking about it like hitting a target, we're going to think of it like a cake. Who doesn't prefer cake to targets? especially if you work in sales. So we're going to think of each of the layers as different aspects of God's will, with each layer telling us something and all of them working together in a cumulative kind of way. So in the Bible, there are basically two ways that it talks about God's will. The first way is what we call the sovereign will of God, and that's the base layer, the one that supports all the rest. God's sovereign will is what we mean when we say things like God's in control. He's in control in the sense that nothing will ultimately get in his way. He's decided to redeem the world and the outcome is never in doubt. Everything is going to happen at the times that he decides in his master plan. It's summed up by something that Job says in the Old Testament. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or as the NLT says, no one can stop you. Nothing can get in the way of God's sovereign will. Now, he doesn't micromanage everything, but he does make sure that ultimately everything conforms to the plans that he has for his creation. In the New Testament, Ephesians 1.11 says he works out everything to fit his plan and purpose. And Romans 8.28 says he makes all things work together for good, even the things that are not good in themselves. We know that God designed free will into the story, but his sovereign will controls the outcome of the story and the major waypoints along the way and especially the coming of the kingdom through Jesus. In Mark's gospel, the very first words Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. That began with Jesus, and it's still coming, there's more to come. He told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we are pursuing the coming of the kingdom in this world and in people's lives, we already know that that is his will. 
we already know that we are doing what God wants us to do. We don't need words or pictures for that. We only need obedience to bring our lives in line with the kingdom having come. Our time, our money, our lifestyle and our priorities. The second way that the Bible talks about God's will is his moral will. That's the next layer, as it were. Moral just means right and wrong. Doing what's right. Doing the right things and doing what's good. His moral will is everything that God has already said in the Bible about how we should live. Loving him, loving each other, serving each other, living faithful lives, living holy lives, living sacrificially, giving sacrificially, praying, worshipping, seeking him, being joined to his church, and so on. So when we're doing those things, we also already know that we are in God's will. And if we're not doing those things, we also know that we're not in his will. Easy peasy. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we have to try to memorize every single thing that God ever said to do or not to do at any time in the biblical story. Not only would that be impossible, we'd end up with a list as long as your arm. I mean, there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament alone. But it does mean that we should want to be familiar with the big themes in the Bible. The things that God's people are always being told to get behind and to get doing. Like Micah 6, for example. The Lord has shown you what is good. He has told you what he requires of you. You must act with justice. You must love to show mercy and walk humbly with your God. And Amos 5, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And in the New Testament, things he wants us to do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Love one another as I have loved you. Freely you have received, freely give. You are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So get joined. And not to do. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desires. And don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idol worshipper, worshipping the things of this world and so on. So those kinds of things are part of the big picture of God's moral will that he wants us to be familiar with and to do. But when it comes to the detail, it can become a bit more complicated. For example, some of the things that Israel was told to do, as God's will in the Old Testament, carry forward because they're repeated in the New Testament. But many of them don't because they were given for different reasons, mainly to do with how they should govern themselves as a nation and how they should do worship. So for us, it's best if we focus on the New Testament. And when in doubt, focus on Jesus. What kinds of things did he do and say? And how did he live his life? And based on that, what would he want me to do and say, and how I should live my life. Jesus embodied God's sovereign will, 
and his moral will. So copying Jesus is already God's will for us. So those are the first two layers of the cake. God will never ask anyone to do anything that isn't in line with his sovereign will or his moral will. We don't need a word from the Lord to do the work of the kingdom, to love, to serve, to give, generously and sacrificially, to be joined to his church, and so on. Because we know that all of those things are already God's will for us. Andy Gilbert, who is one of our assistant pastors at Ellsbury Vineyard, he used to say, his, his most famous line of counsel was, thus saith the Lord, just do it. Which I think he got from a running shoe advert, but still true. Okay, so, so far, so good. But here's where it gets a bit tricky. The question is, what is the next layer of our cake? Does God have an individual, detailed plan for our lives, decided even before we were born, a kind of scaled-down, personalized version of his sovereign will? Now, it's relatively easy to think that God would have a plan for all of the big decisions in life, like who I marry and where I live and what church I join, what job I do and stuff like that. But it's a little less clear whether he has a plan for all the small decisions, like the pink socks and the Shiraz or the Chardonnay. If only John's gospel had told us what kind of wine Jesus turned that water into at the wedding in Cana. Maybe that would have given us a clue. But then again, they didn't wear socks in the Bible. So it can't help us with that one. So remember, men, socks with sandals is unbiblical. Now, there seems to be no reason in principle you would think why God's will shouldn't extend down to that level of detail. But if it does, what are the chances realistically of you and me being able to discern it? And if some things aren't in God's plan, then why aren't they? How can I be in the will of God if no will of God exists for something? Now, I'm not saying that God isn't interested in the little details of our lives. And I'm not saying that he doesn't guide us in small things. So hear me on that. But the question is whether being in his will is a detailed plan that he wants me to find and to follow minute by minute every day. Like some kind of supernatural satnav. God's ways, you might say, if you have the app. Now, if you know your Bible, Jeremiah 29.11 may have popped into your head as the obvious answer to this question. I'm surprised you don't know that, Steve. You obviously don't listen to many sermons. So let's take a, a quick look at that verse, shall we? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Which, as a standalone verse, sounds great. And I am not saying that it's wrong. Because God certainly doesn't have plans to harm us or to leave us without hope. And he does care about our future. Plenty of other verses tell us that. 
But we do need to understand the context here before quoting it willy-nilly. Firstly, the you here is Israel, not us. So God is speaking into their story at that time, not into all of our stories all of the time. Secondly, they were in exile in Babylon. So God wasn't saying, I'm going to make you all rich or guarantee that nothing bad would ever happen to them. It already had. And thirdly, that yes, that prophecy did come true, but the plans that it's talking about were to restore Israel to its land. And that didn't happen until 70 years later. So that one-off verse isn't saying what many Christians assume that it is. It isn't saying that God has a detailed personal plan for every minute of our lives. And sadly, it isn't promising that God's going to make all of us rich. So if that isn't the next layer of our cake, then what is? The next layer is God's wisdom. He doesn't just give us revelation of his will through things like words and pictures, which we will come on to in a moment. He also wants to fill us with knowledge of his will through wisdom. And where does that come from? The Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1, Paul says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through what? All the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So it's not just words and pictures that are gifts of the Spirit, wisdom is too. Isn't that interesting? We don't hear so much about that. And similarly, in the book of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If we were supposed to only work from revelation of his will, then the Bible wouldn't tell us to ask for wisdom. We wouldn't need wisdom, and God wouldn't be offering to give it to all of us generously. So wisdom must be important in the mix here. I'm reminded of the story of someone in the church that we were in many years ago, who God said had told him to walk down Marlowe High Street in just his underpants, which was something to be thankful for, at least. Now, Marlowe is posh, okay? So it's not something that people generally do there. Aylesbury, yes, happens all the time. <laughs> Marlowe, no. But if we are relying on, or only on, individual personal revelation of the God told me variety, then who's to say that God wouldn't potentially say something as wacky as that? When someone says, God told me, it's a bit of a conversation killer, isn't it? I mean, who wants to be on the wrong side of God by having the audacity to disagree with him? But if we include wisdom in the mix, we might well have pause for thought as to whether God really had said it. I used to be quite intimidated as a pastor when someone said, God told me. But now I'm quite happy to say, well, that's strange. He hasn't told me that. Now, it's important to say that wisdom is not the same thing as common sense. Although, 
a little bit more common sense in some Christian circles wouldn't go amiss. But what the world commonly thinks makes sense is sometimes very different from what God thinks. Let's take financial giving to the church as an example. The world would say, that's foolish. Keep it for yourselves. Have a few more takeaways. Go somewhere nicer on holiday. Just give as little as you can get away with without anyone noticing. But if we want to be in God's will for our finances, generous giving makes all the sense in the world. 2 Corinthians 9 says, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. And God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. That's his will for us in giving. In 1 Corinthians 1, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise, who think that keeping is smarter than giving. So what about those other ways that God speaks to us, like words and pictures, circumstances, a Bible verse, words in our head and, and so on? How, how do they fit in? We know, don't we, that sometimes they can be very special and very meaningful. They can be the final confirmation and encouragement. The word that I like to use for those is signposts. Or you, you could say revelation, that's the technical term. And signposts build on the other aspects, but they never replace them. And certainly they never contradict them. Signposts can often be the icing on the cake of what God is saying. But if we've only got icing, then we need to hold on to it way more lightly and to bring it into conversation with wisdom and especially the wisdom of others. Now, John Wimber, who was the main founder of the vineyard many years ago, he started off as a Quaker and they practiced something called a clearness committee which sounds very bureaucratic, but it's really not. It's bringing together a small group of wise and mature Christians to worship together and pray together and to seek God together on what he's saying to someone about a major life decision. And they do that so that it's not all about me and God told me. Now, I've not done that, but it sounds really interesting. After all, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says we have the mind of Christ collectively, not I personally have the mind of Christ individually. But that does mean giving up control because what the group feels the Holy Spirit is saying might not suit me. So it requires humility to be a part of that. So signposts definitely have their place as part of our cake but please don't treat them as if they are the whole cake. And then finally, the top layer, our relationship with Jesus. But in order for that to work as it's supposed to, it needs to be a particular kind of relationship, one that is all about intimacy between us and him. So let's change it to that. Voila. Now, God is not a control freak or a micromanager in the way that he involves us in his plans. So getting guidance from him is not about trying to tune in for messages from heaven. 
or instructions from HQ. That's how the military works, but it's not how a family works. Yes, of course, God has preferences for us and desires for us and things that he wants doing and things where he would love it if we were the one doing it for him. But it's not about marching orders. It's a two-way conversation like a parent with a child. So when I say to God, what do you want me to do, Lord? As often as not, I think he says, Steve, I can build my church a thousand ways through a thousand people. What would you like to do? Let's chat about the things that I love and the things that I want to see happen. And let's compare that with the things that you love, that you have a passion for, the things I've already put in your heart, the ways that I've made you and equipped you and gifted you. What part would you like to play in building my kingdom? Why don't we chat it through together? When God called Isaiah in the Old Testament, he heard the Lord say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It was a question, an invitation, an opportunity to be involved in what God was doing. And Isaiah's response was, here am I, Lord. Why don't you send me? And it's, it's often been said that the only ability God needs from us is our availability, our willingness and our desire to say yes. So what about calling? Does God have a calling for every single one of us? Well, clearly he has some very specific callings for some people and some situations. That's clear in scripture and it's clear in history. So the question is whether he has something like that for everyone. So here's what I think. I think that for everyone who wants a calling, God has a calling. I think that there are lots of me-shaped spaces in God's plans and you-shaped spaces in God's plans. And he loves to include us. So the only question is, do we want to be? And how much do we want to be? Are we willing to reshape our life so that it's compatible with being part of his plans? And it's worth saying that whatever else God may call us to be and to do in his kingdom, it always starts with serving and giving. It never starts with gifting. When we are looking for people to lead something, we look for people who are already serving and giving because that's what we think God is looking for as well. And none of us needs a word from the Lord to be doing that. We don't need a specific calling to be doing that because everyone is called to give and to serve. And we never graduate out of giving and serving. So to finish, here's a very quick recap. God's sovereign will is what we mean when we say that God is in control. His plans and purposes will happen. Nothing is going to stop them. So we just need to get involved with them. His moral will is everything he's already told us about how to live and what to do. 
So we don't need prophetic words for that. Read the New Testament, absorb it, and as Andy would say, just do it. Because nothing that we think that God is saying will ever contradict it. We need to ask God for wisdom. Wisdom is just as much a gift of the Spirit as those famous spiritual gifts are. God wants us to have it and he wants us to use it in community, not just individualistically. Hand in glove with wisdom is signposts. Words and pictures, circumstances, divine appointments, God coincidences, and so on. And those are the icing on the cake. But beware of making them into the whole cake. And then last, but by no means least, our relationship with Jesus. An intimate kind of relationship. Not an impersonal, messages from heaven kind of relationship. Because we are not just servants we are family. To be in God's will is to allow all of these aspects to work together, with each of them asking us different questions, each of them being ways that we hear God and we test what we think we're hearing, involving other people in that as well. We're looking for all of the above, all working together in how he guides us in his will for our lives.